morning and you're listening to Questions of Faith live from London with me, Father Toby, and joined in the studio today by uh, Tim. And uh, I want to begin with a, a prayer, as always asking for for God's help, for the intercession of the, the saints and the angels that we answer these questions well with humility and help lead others into faith. And today, especially, we ask the, uh, the intercession of San Juan Diego, the one to whom the uh, Virgin of Guadalupe um, first appeared and whose tilma uh, is still so beautifully preserved in the uh, magnificent shrine of, of Guadalupe, Guadalupe in Mexico City, um, one of the most amazing places I've ever been. Um, got a, a really interesting selection of uh, questions today. Our first one um, and it's something actually that sort of exercised me at times, but uh, the writer asks, I have an icon that was passed on to me of Jesus, Mary, and John the Baptist. It's a print on wood, and the print is faded. I want to dispose of it, but it doesn't feel right to put it in the bin. Do religious objects like this need to be disposed of in a particular way? I remember hearing that priests' robes are burnt when no longer in use. Please help. And the quandary sort of which first had me sort of wondering about something like this was uh, as a flat warming present many, many years ago, uh, somebody bought me a sort of Jesus soap on a rope, uh, which is obviously wrong in so many different ways. But there was a little bit of a problem of, like, obviously, I'm not going to use this thing. Um, but what am I going to do with it? Because it's been made in some way to bear, bear the image, the image of Jesus, and so therefore deserves a certain respect, even though it's an irreverent um, object. Um, and yeah, I wasn't really sure what I was supposed to supposed to do. And this speaks partly to a, a problem in our society, I think, with a, a proliferation of images. Um, images actually sort of other than actually seeing people in person. Images used to be incredibly rare until relatively recently in our in our history. Um, and now there, there are just images absolutely everywhere and some images that are that are fleeting um, on a digital advert, computer screen, um, other sort of cheap manufactured or mass produced sort of prayer cards. And there's such a proliferation of the image that the images lost something of his of its of its value but that's another um uh, rabbit hole to go down with the particular question of what to do with uh religious images and other and other religious objects when um perhaps either they've come to the, the end of their use um or they've degraded so much as to no longer sort of inspire devotion and worship the gen generally suggested practice is to either to burn them um, and then dispose of the ashes in a in a sort of dignified way, normally by burying in the garden, or simply just to to bury the the object. And we take a we take a particular care when an object has been blessed, um, because a blessing isn't a temporary uh, thing; rather, a sort of a a, a blessing remains. So once once an object has been blessed, it's in fact um, against church law to to sell it because we shouldn't sell blessed things because the blessing of god is both the most sort of precious thing that we can receive but also something that can't be bought um it's why you can't buy and sell 
relics as well. Um, but once something is blessed, a particular reverence is, is, due, is due to it. And so we have to take particular care that it can't then be used for a profane uh, use, um, that it can't um, be degraded in some way. So particularly, say, a, a chalice consecrated for use at the Mass, um, it would be irreverent to if it came to, you know, no longer worthy, it'd be sort of couldn't be used fittingly at the mass anymore. It wouldn't be right just to now use that as a as a cup. Um, but all this thought of what we should do with uh, religious items and devotionals should always lead us to to thinking about ourself, um, because you are far more precious um, than any than any object um, or religious item. You're made in the image and likeness of God by baptism. You become by grace what Jesus uh, is by his by his very nature. And so if we take care in the sort of disposal of a, of a sort of a prayer card or of a faded um, icon print, um, how much more care should we should we take of ourselves? Um, I'm just going to ask Tim now whether he has anything to uh, add. I'm conscious I've gone on a long time on that first question. Here he is a, a silent witness, but maybe he has something to add now. The only thing I would say is that um, to this question specifically from um, the person who's written into us and asked about this icon is that consider perhaps giving it to someone because it might be that although it's faded, it still has a significance and somebody else might find it quite uh, encouraging or or uplifting. And then one other thing is that um, icons were, are quite a sort of, I came late to the party, to the icon, um, uh, sort of, they, they weren't really in my, in my spiritual life for the first part of my life. Um, but to, to understand them as almost being the same way that we, we would treat photographs or letters or pieces or any items that come from people that we love, it's very much the same thing with icons. You, you don't, um, you know, you don't throw a photograph of your family in the bin. Like you, you keep that and you, it's something that's quite precious to you. And that same sentiment is just sort of carried over into the spiritual life. Um, and it's that I find quite a helpful way of, of looking at things. Yeah. Um, and so what icons in particular, I'm conscious that this writer, this isn't, this isn't actually an, an icon. It's a, a print on print on wood but icons as well in we talk about actually uh, writing an icon rather than painting an icon and there are very particular rules that have to be observed in the the writing of an icon um so the icon itself is the is an, an is an act of prayer um and so if if something were a true icon i would always say to sort of restore it or to to, to give it a away um want to go now to our our sort of next uh question um and i'm going to skip i'm going to skip the second question that i have because we're going to come back to that after a piece of music because it's a very uh substantial question um but the, the next question is i love all souls and all saints day do the saints see or hear us all the time or is it just when we pray to them um and there's a short and easy answer to that question which is 
I don't know. Um, but the uh, the slightly longer answer, which perhaps the questioner was hoping for, um, or at least a, a part of it, is to say, obviously the saints, uh, with the exception of Mary, don't have eyes. Um, Mary is the uh, uh, probably the the only saint bodily in heaven, perhaps Elijah and Elisha too. Um, but they don't have eyes. Um, and even if they did have eyes, where would they look? Um, is heaven a place with a sort of a great vantage point from which you can uh, see all of the earth? And if it's um, north of us, would they be able to see what was going on at the South Pole? Um, and if it's south of us, could they see what was going on at the, the North Pole? Um, and so we have to, when we're thinking about heaven, remember that that heaven is more than a, a place, is a, a new manner of relating to God, a different way of existing in relation with him. And so for the saints who, given that the, the general resurrection of the body hasn't occurred yet, uh, for for most of the saints in heaven, the way that they see is by the sort of infused knowledge of God, by sharing in what God sees. And so my answer would be that they they see as much as God sees fitting to reveal to them. Um, and so I would speculate that uh, that, a, that a saint um, always, you know, hears the, the, the prayers and sees the person who is praying for his or her intercession. Um, and perhaps if a saint particularly loved a, a particular place or a, or a type of thing that that saint is is granted the knowledge of that that place or people uh, doing that activity um, there's a whole nother debate um, but given the questioner didn't quite ask that although they said I love all souls they didn't ask did the souls in purgatory see us I'm going to dodge that one but the answer again to that one would be I don't know but Tim might want to take it on Oh, I, yeah. Uh, souls in purgatory, I'm also going to have to dodge that one. I found your response to that quite obscure at first, but I think that's that's really interesting that it perhaps may, brings up more questions um, than it answers, just thinking about, well, what would the saints be like when they do have their bodies, if they, um, with this infused knowledge, and then the um, what comes when we have our resurrected bodies and we do have eyes, but um, I think I think it's true. I think we we can be sure that when we, at least when we pray, and invoke the saints' intercession, that um, they do in some way witness to that. Whether that witness is a seeing or just a having some kind of knowledge, um, we don't know. If those those questions will be answered later. Yeah. Well, I'm glad my answer went from uh, somewhat obscure to <laughs> to shedding a little more light. Although not the full, not the fullness of light that there will be in heaven. I think at that point might be a, a good point to go to our our first piece of music, and then we've got a, a rather meaty question on uh, democracy in the church to come back to after that. Thank you so much, Father Toby. I'd also uh, like to tell the listeners that I'm opening the phone lines. If you'd like to call in, the number is oh one two two three. Three seven five five six four oh one two two three three seven five five six four and this is it is well with my soul.
listening to Radio Maria England to our sort of questions of faith. Um, I'm joined today by uh, Tim from our editorial team, uh, and it's me, Father Toby, with you live from London. Uh, our next question today, which is a very topical one and, uh, and probably in many minds uh, quite a sort of controversial or you know, one that's likely to start debates, is as follows. I've heard it said that the church is not a democracy, particularly around the synod. I was thinking that the Pope is elected by vote, and so this is a democratic process. And please don't say it isn't. It is a vote, even if it's one led by the Holy Spirit. Why is democracy so restricted in our church? And I'm going to hand that one over to Tim, who's giving me a wry uh, <laughs> smile at a potentially a hospital pass. Uh, all right. Um, so I think the, the, 
reference to the Holy Spirit here is really um, important because at the end of the day, if we are, we desire to be led by the Holy Spirit, the church needs to be led um, by the Holy Spirit ultimately. And how that leading happens, whether it happens through um, a hierarchical uh, way where you have one person who kind of is um, leading, listening to the voice of the Holy Spirit, uh, or if you have a more democratic way, um, we our aim and our hope is that the Holy Spirit is working through these means one way or another. Um, I think that it would be more problematic if um, everything was decided on by vote, making the church a democracy, because it would mean that um, the Holy Spirit was always working within the majority. And I don't think that that's true. I don't think that um, that the majority holds uh, is always in tune with the Holy Spirit. So I think that it would... It would um, be more, yeah. It would open up more problems for me. I'd be more uncomfortable with 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 that than um, than not. And I think the fact that the church is not a d democracy, what that means is that it, it's open to having various uh, different means of making decisions present within the church. So one of them being democracy in certain uh, democratic uh, ways of making decisions within things like the choosing of the Pope. Um, but then there may be other times when democracy is not the right way for a decision to be made. And the fact that the church is not a democracy means that there are these other um, ways of making decisions that can be present. Whereas if it were a democracy, I think that um, there'd be less openness to that. That's that's the best I can do. There you go. <laughs> and that was very helpful. Thank you. The I would say resoundingly, the church is not a democracy, but it does use um, democratic institutions in some of its decision-making. Um, the church is a monarchy and Christ is the king. Um, we have the the feast day in the, the liturgy of sort of Christ, uh, Christ the, the king of the universe. Um, the question then is how Christ rules in his church and how um, his church sort of uh, discerns what, uh, what, what the will of Jesus would be in things. And, and we're very attracted to um, democracy and, and democracy to me for, for most of my life has just seemed very, very obvious. Um, but I remember when I was... Uh, working in Hong Kong, and uh, back in the in the days when I was a solicitor, and I went on a weekend trip over to uh, to China, um, to uh, an amazing place called uh, Piano Island, um, where sort of Matteo Ricci, the great Jesuit, had been and brought pianos to uh, to China, and uh, and everywhere around this island, there's just pianos and people playing. Um, it's really quite wonderful. But I met a young uh, Chinese university student there at the University of Xiamen and he said to me can I just spend some time with you I want to improve my English um and uh and I happily said yes and we went round and and he started saying to me fairly early on in the course of things isn't democracy a crazy system and I was like well no not 
really. I, I don't think so. And I said, I think it's a lot better than communism. And, uh, and he said, but in democracy, even stupid, ill-informed people get to vote. And I was like, yeah, but it's important that everybody have a voice. And, uh, and I think it is important that every single person is, is respected. Um, but if we were going to have a, a sort of a, a vote on the sort of, you know, what is the, the nature of Jesus, um, or we were going to decide a, an element of church teaching, um, then it would seem that, uh, that immediately you would think, well, who is qualified to, to think about this matter? That doesn't mean that you say other people aren't important. They are very important because what the church teaches about this sort of affects their lives. But nonetheless, what they have to contribute to a particular discussion or how much weight should be given to their view is going to depend somewhat on how informed and I would say more importantly how how holy um, they are. And it's very true that at times in history uh, the majority of people would have voted for practices that we now find abhorrent um, in certain societies and times and places. Uh, the majority of people would have been in favor of slavery um, and we wouldn't say that it was the right thing to have slavery because the majority of people would have voted for it. Um, what most people think is no guarantee of it being right. And so the, the job of the church is always to try and discern what is true and to recognize that the truth has a claim on us um, as opposed to think that we get to decide uh, what is true. But there are, it does seem that there are, there are certain aspects of church um, governance where democracy seems uh, appropriate um, or seems like it should be at least one part of the decision making and there are some elements of sort of modern church uh, governance which are, are less democratic than uh, used to be the case once upon a time. St Ambrose of Milan whose uh, feast day we kept earlier in the week he became bishop by popular acclamation. The old bishop died, and all the people in the town declared that Ambrose should be their next bishop. And this was despite the fact that he wasn't yet uh, a priest, nor even baptized, as it happened. Um, whereas now the sort of selection of new bishops uh, really sort of takes place behind sort of closed closed doors. And I don't I don't think that's a that's a good a good thing. I think there should be wider consultation in the in the in the selection of of bishops because I think the the sort of people on the ground have have uh, have something sort of very valid to add to. Who do they think are the the wise, good, and holy pastors who should uh, lead the lead the church? Um, and then you have something like the the synod, uh, which is perhaps the largest sort of consultation exercise ever engaged in in the in the history of, of of the world it doesn't seem to me people have kind of really commented on this fact but an idea that a, a consultation exercise would go on with every single catholic around the the world um a consultation exercise with over a, a billion people um that's quite a, a remarkable thing and even on a purely logistical level uh, quite remarkable that that should take place. Um, and the synod is 
democratic in in certain ways but ultimately is a is a consultation and so the proposals that are put forward which will be voted on by various members of the synod aren't ultimately binding and obviously that's going to be unsatisfactory to to some and to to others um a relief that it might preserve the church from possible error uh which uh, sort of a voted upon procedure might lead us into but to sort of come full circle the the important thing is that the is the sort of the holiness of the people and the prayerfulness of the people engaged in the in the decision making um and the holy spirit can operate through uh, a vote and i think the holy spirit can also operate through the the drawing of lots as we saw with the sort of election or selection of the first uh, um, new apostle uh, after the time of Christ, when the disciples drew lots and decided upon uh, Matthias uh, to replace Judas. I don't know if there's anything further you'd like to add to all of that. Yeah, Tim, I think um, I, the the whole question of the synod is obviously what has um, sparked this question, and there is the idea of the census fidelium where the church that is the the faith of the of the people of god um and the doctrine that um the church as a whole the people of god as a whole cannot err in um, matters of faith so um it might seem logical to say well in order to find out what the holy spirit is saying to the church the best thing to do is to take a census and um to see what the faithful believe. But um, I think, I, I know that uh, Cardinal Newman, John Henry Newman wrote about what this actually means is it, it's not about um, taking a, a census and seeing what people want in the church, but it's about um, rather the way a doctor would uh, take the temperature of a patient to see what is actually present within the body of the patient. That's what the uh, the church or the leaders of the church do when they're trying to, um, for example, see whether, whether the church actually believes something like the Immaculate Conception, which we celebrated yesterday, that this is something that would have been in the hearts of the faithful. And, um, and there are times when when the church consults on these matters. But I think there's been a little bit of a confusion between that, we're seeing what is in the hearts of the faithful in terms of what they believe and what's happening in the in the synod, which is is often trying to push forward new ideas or new decisions and things like that. And so ideas of, of democracy kind of become a little bit hazy. Yeah, and there's an important uh, point to be made about when we we speak about the the faithful and the sort of tim raised there about saint john henry newman who drew the distinction between um uh, divine faith as in, as infused virtue and uh and private and and sort of human faith and private private judgment um because if somebody uh sort of says with regards to to, to church teaching what's sometimes des described as a, as a cafeteria Catholic, 
um, well, I agree with this part and I agree with this part, but that can't possibly be true. That can't possibly be true. Then who or what is their faith actually in? Their faith is then, without wishing to sound patronizing, that might sound offensive to to some people, their, their faith is then in themselves and their own judgment. And they have appointed themselves the, the arbiter of all truth. And, and that's why divine faith is, is such a, a radical thing and, and something which I didn't have for the first what, 23 years of, of, my, of, of my life until a, a priest sort of had a very helpful discussion with me and and divine faith is a is a is a radical new way of existing in relationship with god whereby i trust in what he teaches and i trust in the church that he's founded um and whereby i believe something even though at first blush i think this is hard or this sounds difficult um because normally the the things that I balk at or, or sort of uh, back away shouting from uh, are things which are calling me to to love in a more radical way, um, which are calling for an opening up of my heart to a to a new way of of being. Um, and if we don't have this sort of open disposition to church teachings which we find difficult that doesn't mean that we don't explore them with the fullness of our of our intellect but if we don't have an an openness to the fact that i might be wrong that my initial impression my initial reaction to something might be wrong then we will never grow we will never learn and essentially what we've created is is, is a sort of a god of our own instincts a god of our own private judgment and we've turned ourselves into an an idol so this idea of like divine faith versus human faith is a is a really important uh one um and st john henry newman is uh is very interesting to to read on this because he went through a, a real sort of journey himself on the on the way into the catholic church that's probably as as much as as um you want to hear from me on that it might already be more than you wanted to hear from me um on that but i think it might be a good time now to go to a, another piece of music and to invite you to to call in with any questions if you have any the number is zero one two two three three seven five five six four that's zero one two two three three seven five five six four Thank you, Father Toby. This is Poor Wayfaring Stranger from the Hillbilly Thomists. Poor wayfaring stranger Traveling through this world below There's no sickness, no toil or danger In that bright
Father Toby, we have a call and it's Helena and Rowan on the line. You're on air and three to Father Toby. Hello, Hello. Father Toby. Hello, how are you? Uh, okay. <laughs> okay. 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 And what's your question today? If you're poorly, should you still go to church? Right, and are you poorly at the moment? He doesn't want to share that with the listeners. <laughs> Okay, because I'm wondering whether it had anything to do with eating a plastic fork in a Chinese restaurant on Tuesday night, which <laughs> I have served with my own eyes. He didn't um, eat it. He didn't eat it. I know he didn't eat it. He just chewed it off. Um, so it's a really, it's a really good question because there's a, a few different things we can say. Is like, first of all, you know, if if we're if we're sick. Um, and we know how horrible it is to be sick, um, then we don't want others to uh to, to get to get sick. Um 
And that's why I've got a rather horrible lurgy at the moment. And so uh, I suggested to a guest who's with us today that she might be better off sitting in the other room for the show rather than being in an enclosed space with me for for, for an hour um, because you don't want uh, people to, to, to get your sickness. So that would be one thing to think about um, going to church if you were really, really sick. And obviously then that makes a difference between thinking, um, do I have a sort of sickness that somebody else might catch from me? Um, or am I sort of sick in, a, in, in another way? Like, you know, if I have a broken arm, that might be really, really painful, but nobody is going to sort of catch a broken arm uh, off me. Um, and then there's the question, well, you know, am I, am I not wanting to go to church because I'm worried about making other people sick? And that was a, a worry with some people um, during the time of sort of COVID that they thought, well, I'm, I have COVID and I don't actually feel that bad, but I know that I might be around other people who would be a lot more vulnerable if they were to catch this virus off me. And so out of love for them, I won't expose them to it. Or there's uh, do I not want to sort of go to church just because I feel a little bit too rough or I feel a little bit tired or I'd rather sort of be in, in bed. And there I think there's a bit of a, a balance because we have to remember that um what uh, what Jesus did for us um and that one of the astonishing things but also one of the slightly difficult things is that is that Jesus sort of doesn't just say oh i died on the cross and now you don't have to have anything uncomfortable in your life rather he said i i died on the cross for you such that the uncomfortable things in your life now have real meaning, particularly when you offer it to me. And so if you're feeling a little bit sick and you don't think it's going to cause lots of other people to get sick, then there is something really, really beautiful and, and brave in making that effort to, to come to church in order to say, I'm suffering a bit now, Jesus. I want to be prepared to suffer for the, the sake of you in the same way that I want to be prepared to suffer for the sake of, of other people that I, that I love. Um, because suffering, whilst it isn't good in itself, suffering is a bad thing in itself and it, and it wasn't part of God's original plan. Um, when we suffer for the, for the sake of people that we love, which our parents do for us in, in so many ways that we don't see which husbands and wives are, are called to do for for one another then it can be a really beautiful sort of witness of the of the strength of our love i don't think there's anything you would like to add to that tim no i thought that was a very good answer unlike all the other ones <laughs> <laughs> okay Had you, is there anything more you want to ask rowan thank you bye okay Right, and we'll we say a little prayer for you that, that you get better soon, okay? Thank you. Okay, and I hope to see you very soon. God bless. God bless. Bye. Um, that question from Rowan actually leads us nicely into our uh, next question, which is uh, what is the, the sacrament of the sick? Um. And then the next part of the question is, my granddad didn't have a priest visit before he died. Is this bad? 
Um, I don't know if that this is a question you'd you'd like to have a first go at, Tim. Um, what is the sacrament of the sick? So I think you you should definitely answer that side of things. Um, but uh, is it bad that he didn't have a priest visit him before he died? I think the desire is to for all of us, um, and for our loved ones, and for everyone we know that that they have the opportunity to receive the sacrament of the sick before they died uh, before before we die so um i think that to have that longing and i certainly have that that longing for people i've known who've passed away and haven't had the opportunity to receive sacrament of the sick it's um yes there is a sadness in that and it would be one wouldn't want to just pass over it and and say that it's it's neither here nor there because it is a huge blessing to receive the sacrament of the sick and um, there are graces available there for those who are at death's door. Um, but also just to be aware of the fact that uh, if it's through no fault of our own, that these people haven't had that opportunity, that the Lord has, um, he is not, uh, although we are bound by the sacraments, he is not, and he can still um, come and meet these people in their final hours. He, um, he's not, the Lord is not, uh, kind of hindered in that way so that that's what i would say to this person yeah thank you the and i just sort of add to that yeah like it's a it's not so much a sort of a bad thing not to have the priest as a as it is a, a really really good thing to have the, the the priest and 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 i would say to people don't feel worried about like oh but father's busy he might not want to come um father might well be busy but he should come uh and so call but also one of the things um the helpful thing since uh vatican two is that we now more often call this the the sacrament of the sick or the anointing of the sick rather than the last rites and the last rites can be part of it but the last rites i think gives people an impression that you're supposed to wait um right up till the very moment of death before you would um give this uh, sacrament but having spent uh, a lot of time working in, in in hospital in the last sort of couple of years um I mean, sometimes we have a very good idea when somebody's going to die and sometimes things happen very um suddenly so if somebody's just seriously ill um then uh please do ask for the the priest or the um your parish priest or the the hospital chaplain to go and visit them but the sacrament of the sick in terms of what it what it is is essentially our our being faithful to the to the example um of the of the early church um and of sort of christ's teaching and at the at the very beginning of the of the sacrament um the priest says the word um through the apostle james he has commanded us if there are any sick among you let them send for the priests of the church and let the priests come anointing them with oil in the name of the lord healing them and forgiving their sins and so that's what the the priest comes to do in in response to that command from the apostle james to anoint uh, the, the sick with oil and to uh and, and to forgive sins and anointing is a is a old um symbol uh with a, a much longer 
history than 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 this particular sacrament people are anointed for various different purposes the name christ means the anointed one but in this case the anointing is uh, especially for for healing um and for strengthening um and the the healing is is in the, sometimes in the hope of uh that through this uh oil and the and the prayers and the grace of god that the person might recover um from the sickness but more importantly and always that they might be healed in their soul and the strengthening is because sickness is is hard sickness is 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 difficult we all know how even a fairly sort of minor cold can change our our mood our our disposition in various ways and 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 serious sickness can can make faith hard um and so part of the effect of the of the sacrament of the sick is to give the person the strength um not to lose faith not to lose trust in the in the love of god for them at that moment and in and in this the the hour of their passion the hour of their crucifixion to, to stay close to christ knowing that if they stay close to christ in the in the difficulty then they will be um reunited with him in the in the fullness of glory in the resurrection and uh it's an astonishingly beautiful sacrament uh, amongst the, the greatest privileges of of being a priest is giving the the anointing of the the sick um and it's amazing how many nurses in the hospital um especially sort of nurses of, of other religions or or no religion who've who've commented to me you know i just found that incredibly beautiful um or the number of nurses who after i've done that said could could i have a, a blessing uh please father or who asked sort of more questions about this and and for for families as well we i've realized ritual is really really important because death and suffering is difficult and we can become a little bit clueless as to what i'm supposed to do and so i often see sort of families when their their loved one is is near death and they're they're standing there and and they're all a bit awkward and the lovely thing about sort of liturgy is that we don't have to invent it ourselves it's it's given to us um and and we can be doing something without having to think sort of too hard about creating something and so the litany of the the saints uh at the uh, side of somebody who's who's dying um is something incredibly beautiful particularly for people who maybe don't often go to church because all you have to say is you know pray for us or you know pray for the 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 person by name who's dying and it's often during that moment that i found that the lots of sort of the emotions that are that have been bottled up work them they work their way to the to, to the surface and, and people start to cry and i think that's always a, a really healthy and good thing when people start to express the way they're they're really feeling in that moment and then come to say the the things they really need to say really really want to say um and so it's such a a beautiful sacrament as i said and and never be embarrassed never be too worried about the 
the priest being um, busy um, because it's something, however busy he is, he should come to to do this. And if he complains, just tell him, Father Toby on Radio Maria said you weren't to complain, you were to come. Um, and I'll de- I'll deal with it from from there. But thank you for that for that question. Um, whoever gave it the um, the next question I, I want to go to, and it might be um, our final question today, uh, is did Jesus have a sense of humor or does God have a sense of humor? If so, how do we know? Are there any signs in the universe of it? Um, the duckbill platypus. <laughs> <laughs> or as other people have just said, the naked human body. Um, right. you know, uh, but yet, yeah, like there are yeah, ridiculous looking things. And I, I think absolutely sort of signs of uh, God's humor um, everywhere and definitely signs of, uh, of Jesus's humor in, in some of his, his dialogues. I don't, I don't know what you think on that, Tim. Definitely. That was actually the first thing that came to mind. Um, I think that the, the, uh, story of the, the plank in your brother's eye and the speck in your own eye to me, I mean, you, I can't see you, you're telling that parable without getting a laugh out of the crowd. I mean, that's just hilarious as, as far as I'm concerned. Yeah, I think some of the some of these images we've become too familiar with them, and we just sort of listen, or we just presume that sort of like church is a is a sort of humor free zone, um, and so like like you say, that is a hysterical image, but we've heard it so many times, we actually forget to picture it, or the idea of uh, a camel trying to squeeze a camel through the eye of a needle, yeah, um, or Jesus meeting Nathaniel and him sort of in a to my mind in a rather sort of playful way saying you know sort of uh, you know has has anything good ever come out come yeah. out of there and sort of so they, they i think there's lots of examples but it, it's a good occasion to think about what uh what what humor is um and i think sort of humor sees to to the reality of things um sometimes uh we say of people who don't get a joke um that they were they were too thick to to get it um, I think there's a certain sort of uh, um, we call sort of uh, translucence about 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 humor. Humor sort of shines a, a light so that we see through to deeper deeper realities to see things the the way that they are. Um, and so there can be a humor which is just sort of de- de- degrading. Um, and, and a humor which drags down and a, and a humor that makes things seem less sacred than they, they are. And, and that's not a good a good thing, the humor that tears down. But the humor that sees beyond the, the superficial to the, uh, to the reality of things, whether it be the sort of observational humor about uh, like our, our behavior and, and the funny things that we do that enable us to, to not take ourselves too seriously or the humor that lets us see uh, a profound uh, truth. Um, like there was a, a joke going um, that somebody sent me um, that Scott Hahn had done on Twitter uh, recently, you know, Scott Hahn, one of the the best theologians around, and he said that you know Jesus, I mean Mary and Joseph are sitting down having breakfast one day, and uh, 
Mary says to Joseph, do you know, Joseph, when I die, I'm going to go straight to heaven. And uh, Joseph replies to her, well, that's quite an assumption to make, Mary. And that that teaches us two things, that joke. Um, it makes the point about the assumption, um, but Joseph's comment also teaches us about the sin of presumption. Um, and so there's a, there's a couple of things going on there. We know that we're being warned that we shouldn't just uh, presume that we're going to, to heaven. Um, but we also learn that Mary is assumed into, into heaven. And, and, uh, and so I think that humor can be a wonderful way of getting people to look at things in a way that they hadn't seen them before and therefore see more deeply. And that was really important for uh, somebody like sort of G.K. Chesterton, who has been such a big influence on me. You may think that his humor hasn't rubbed off on me, um, despite my best efforts um, and uh, bad dad jokes from time to time. Um, but but he saw he looked with the eyes of a of a child and uh, and and saw with great wonder and with great humor um, and uh, and took God very very seriously, but not himself, which I think is probably the the right the right way round. Yeah, and I think that there's. Um... There are certain kinds of humor that that just aren't um, godly. You know, they don't; they're not compatible with holiness. And you feel this when you're in the presence of a person that is very holy. There's certain jokes that you just can't make, mm. and there's certain jokes that you would never hear pass um, from their lips. And that's not just because the content might be bad, but also because they it will be a joke at somebody else's expense. Um, and uh, and that can be a very um, a good way, I think, of 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 gauging these things. And I think that it's not um, it's not hard to sort of then apply that logic to what Jesus would have been like, and to to imagine that he would have been the kind of person who would make who was full of the joy of the Holy Spirit and would have made. Um, would have made jokes. In fact, there's a, and this is a bit of a joke, and perhaps it is 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 could be taken a bit irreverently. But I often in the Bible you see the words "Amen, Amen." I say unto you, or it's translated as "Truly, Truly." I say unto you, and I've, and some people have said, "Aha, this is because Jesus was joking most of the time," and then he had to <laughs> he had to say, "All right, guys, seriously now, jokes aside." Um, but I think there is even a truth in that that there is. There is a lightness in um, in holy people, and um, and that doesn't mean that's not the same as frivolity. I think frivolity is not a a um, a thing that that is conducive with with holiness, but but lightness is. And Pope Francis has actually spoken about how humor is a sign of the Holy Spirit, um, and you find people who with whom you just cannot make a joke, um, who can't, uh, who, who take themselves so seriously that they can't um, be teased as it's not a good thing. I don't think mm. it's a, a sign of, um, there's a kind of seriousness there that is not a sign of the Holy Spirit. Yeah. I think my best friends are the ones who are sort of rudest, to me um because you we particularly i think um for the english we use humor as a way of saying things that we might not say in straightforward language and so we use humor to sort of point out somebody's uh flaws 
um which is sort of the pointing out of somebody's flaws and yet not worrying that that's going to be the end of the relationship is a is a sign of love and a sign of sort of wanting that person to to be more and to become who they could be and uh yeah i i'm not seeking to encourage a, a load of emails with people writing in uh telling me all my all my flaws although perhaps so you know i am open i am open to that but it's always really good for me to be with my uh, sort of good friends from from school and from uni who uh if i was uh getting a little high-headed very um quickly bring me back down to down to earth um and so that's a, another way that humor can be can be used into uh sort of slightly to to sort of prick any an ego that maybe is getting overinflated, but to to do it in a in a not spiteful way or to to say a a, a truth with with charity um in a way that just saying it without the the use of a of a joke may have been may have been too too harsh um i think that's uh probably about all we've got uh time for this week but thank you for a, a great set of questions and thank you to rowan for for phoning in um please do remember that you can uh, submit uh, questions to us throughout the the week um, details on the on the website or you can call in at any time um, very shortly we're going to be going to the uh, mass at uh, Walsingham um, and I just want to finish with a, a prayer now thank you Lord for this time together this time in which we seek to come to know you better to come to know better your will for us and we give you thanks for the the gift of life we give you thanks for the the gift of your revelation of yourself to us that you not only made us in love but that you have made your love known to us in jesus christ and we give you thanks for the the gift of our of our blessed mother and we ask her intercession as we pray together hail mary full of grace the lord is with thee blessed art thou amongst women and blessed is the fruit of thy womb jesus holy mary mother of god pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death amen so thank you very much for joining us and uh, i will be back uh, a little bit later um praying midday prayer with tim and then uh word for today at 1.15, but in the meantime, we go to the Angela Center Mass.